Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Want to make sure you never miss a Chilling Tales for Dark Nights video again? Be sure to subscribe and hit that bell to turn on notifications. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about phantom playmates and ominous opportunities. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of E.E. King and Midnight Local are voice talents 
Felipe Ojeda, Daniela Hewitt, Kyle Stroud, Trevor Rhines, and Ken Sampson. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale of the evening is written by E.E. King and is performed by Felipe Ojeda, Danielle Hewitt, Kyle Stroud, and Trevor Rhines. With the fall season well underway, we're throwing some love to the summer sun with this one. It's about a family enjoying a trip to the beach, and boy are they enjoying it. In fact, if you ask the kids, they'd likely say they'd never want to leave, and one of them may get their wish. So on that note, without further ado, I present to you Gods of Summer. Kate and Michael had come to the beach for the entire summer. Three months stretched out before them, endless as the tide that painted white ribbons of foam on the sand. A diving pelican crashed into the waves as if someone had dropped a small rock out of the sky. They stood, hand in hand, breathing shallowly, motionless, made temporarily mute and still by the glory before them, but only for a moment. Then they kicked off their shoes and socks, leaving them behind like the discarded skins of cicadas clinging to the tall golden grass that lined the beach. Never looking back, they raced toward the crashing sea, laughing hearts beating in time with the tide and all creation on this perfect first day of summer. It was a summer that would last forever. They knew it by the way the sand crept between their toes like the family dog's rough, adoring tongue. Somewhere in a distant world, the townies stocked empty shelves with shiny packaged goods, filled their freezers with bags of ice, and waited. Their parents prepared the summer house, unpacking their suitcases, putting food in cupboards, ordering propane, and doing all the boring, unimportant things grown-ups did. It was a strange beach, full of odd mounding stones that formed a wavy line where the high tide washed against the shore, darkening each grain of sand. The mounds had once been sand themselves, hardened into rock by the centuries. That very first day, they ran breathlessly down to the sea, daring the waves to catch them. Kate thought she saw first one, then two, then three, then dozens and dozens of boys, each standing in front of the stone mound, flickering against the mist that had risen from the meeting between the sea and shore. But it had only been a trick of the light an illusion of the rising, shimmering heat, salt and surf and too much sun, because when she blinked and rubbed her eyes, the mist and boys vanished into the foaming surf. Did you see... began Kate, turning to Michael, but he was playing tag with the tide, screeching with laughter as the chill waters nipped his toes. This coast has history, Father had said. It was home to an ancient people, and you can still find artifacts on the shore and in the woods. Arrowheads? asked Kate. She loved searching for treasures. Carved stones, old rocks, delicate seashells, and almost any kind of feather. Whatever she could find. Which in the city wasn't much. Michael preferred books. Magical lands that would not dirty his feet. 
scratch his thighs, or make him itch would only mark his imagination. He lived in a world apart from the other boys, a place of gods and monsters, dragons and enchantments. It made school difficult. There might be arrowheads, father said, or small round stones that they used to place on the graves of their dead to ensure they didn't rise from the earth. They feared ghosts and worshipped a wild god of sea and woods, a kind of pan. Pan? Asked Kate. A frying pan? No, silly, said Michael. Pan was a god with goat legs and horns who played a bamboo flute. No one could resist his music. It is said they stole children from other tribes and buried them alive, under bridges and beneath crossroads, as a sacrifice to their god. In exchange, he left them alone and kept their children safe. Are kids buried under our street? Asked Kate. Perhaps we should go out tonight with a shovel and see. <laughs> Father's voice rose into a maniacal chuckle. I'm not scared, said Michael, but he shivered despite the heat. Now they forgot ghosts and history, arrowheads and dead bodies. They played chase with the tide, letting the cold waters tug their toes before running backwards screaming. Look, said Michael, poking his big toe into the damp sand so the grains dried, making a lightened circle around each foot. It's as if each step I take turns the earth into diamonds. Kate poked her toe in too. We're rich, she cried. I'm turning everything into diamonds. It's how they will know that we are the king and queen, Michael said. All the people will follow the shining footsteps and crown us rulers of the beach. They marched solemnly down the shore, tucking big toes into the sand, so caught up in watching the creation of diamonds they didn't notice a boy standing in front of them until they saw ten naked toes wiggling at the edge of their circle of light. The boy was four or five years older than Michael. His ragged cutoffs were frayed and faded. His bare chest had been tanned the same deep bronze color as the wet sandstone dunes. Ocean breeze tousled his sun-whitened hair, and his light brown eyes were tawny, almost golden, flecked with tiny grains of darkness, like bugs in amber. I'm Tom, he said, holding out his salt-rough hand. I'm Kate, and this is my brother Michael. Come play, Tom said and in the way of children and young animals, that was the only introduction they needed. They raced down the shore, looking for seashells and curious stones. Hey, look. Michael pointed. That moved. Tom scooped it up. It's a hermit crab, he said. They don't even make their own shells. They just look for empty ones and use them. They have to find new homes when they get too big. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, 
You can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. At night, their parents let them go to the beach. But just for an hour, Mother said. And don't get wet. At the shore's edge, Tom waited. They wandered the strand, searching for small white sand dollars so fragile that a mean look could shatter them into a million pieces. Oh. Kate pointed at one sand dollar as big as a flattened tennis ball. Tom scooped it up and broke it. Why? Began Kate, till, like a conjurer, Tom extracted the small bits of dove-shaped bones from the shell's fragments so perfectly, it seemed they might fly away into the setting sun. Tom showed them how the night water flashed when they moved their hands beneath the surface. It's magic, cried Michael, making light trails in the water with his fingers. But Kate knew it was not magic. She was the more skeptical of the two, less trusting and less willing to accept the welcoming invitation of an open door. Tom studied them. You're both right, he said. Little animals actually cause these light flashes. Or maybe they're plants. I forget which but you can only see them when the water is stirred up at night. Then how is he right? Kate said. I'm right. Animals make it. Or plants, said Michael. Or plants, agreed Kate. And neither animals nor plants are magic. They can make light, said Tom. I mean, you can't make light. I can't make light. But they can. Isn't that kind of magic? Kate supposed Tom was just being nice, trying not to make Michael feel dumb. She liked him for that. All year long, he'd been called a sissy, a girl, a moon calf, and a dreamer for preferring stories to baseball and magic kingdoms to soldiers. Michael was usually not so lucky. But I can make light, Michael cried. Look, everywhere I walk turns to diamonds. He raced to where the tide had turned the sand dark and poked his toe in, pulling the grains upward. We're rich, said Tom. They raced down the shore together, laughing and jostling each other until Michael lost his balance and tumbled into the damp surf. Uh Uh-oh, said Michael. Uh Uh-oh, mimicked Kate. You are gonna be in trouble. She drew it out long like it was two words. Trouble. Michael shivered. Just wash it off, said Tom, pulling him toward and under the beating waves. Michael struggled. Then he emerged soaking and shivering, coughing water as salty as tears. Michael stumbled up and chased Tom out of the water. Tom, though half-wet, didn't even seem cold, but Michael's skin was bumpy as a plucked chicken Kate had once seen hanging in a butcher's window. Won't you get in trouble? asked Michael. (laughs) Me? laughed Tom. I'd like to see someone try. Besides, I'm not the one who's all wet. You are now, said Kate pushing him back into the lapping waves. He held on to her arms, dragging her with him. Soon all three were rolling in the sand and icy water, sputtering and laughing. 
Kate and Michael got in trouble. Where does this Tom you talk so much about live? Asked father. Is he a townie or are his people summer people like us? Summer people. Kate liked the sound of that. As if they could spend their whole lives in summer, never returning to school, and winter, and the tormenting laughter of other children. I don't know, said Kate. Haven't you asked him? Her father shook his head and sighed. <sighs> what do his parents do? Both children looked at him as if he were speaking a foreign language. They didn't care what Tom's parents did. They only wanted to play in the waves, hunt for hermit crabs and sand dollars, and make glowing trails of light in the night sea. Why don't you ask Tom to come for dinner? Said their mother. And Kate did. But Tom just shook his head. Can't, he said, disappearing into the darkening night. The children watched him go, fading into the flickering luminescence of the sea and shore. One night, at the end of summer, as they raced to meet Tom, mother gave them a big bag of sunflower seeds. One, two, three, crunch, shouted Tom. They cracked in unison, spitting the empty husks into the surf and chomping the small tender seeds like a chorus of frogs. Kate still remembers it as the happiest night of her life. Why was it so wonderful, so much fun? She still doesn't know, only that they were all together for a moment, heart, soul, mouth, and teeth working as one. Michael had been right after all, she thought. It had been magic. Magic making the sea glow. Magic letting them move through sand, surf, and summer as though they belonged. The night after the sunflower seeds, Kate, Michael, and Tom played hide-and-seek. The obvious place to hide was behind the mound, so Kate lay in the tall golden grass, barely breathing, but they scratched her bare arms and legs, and the sand fleas nipped at her ankles. Cautiously, she raised her head. No one was in sight. She sprang up, racing to crouch behind a dune. It must have been the perfect hiding place because they never found her. She never found them either. She returned home after dark, tired and dirty. Where's Michael? Asked Mother. He's not home? No. We were playing hide and seek with Tom and I lost them. Tom again? Said Father. I'd like to meet that young man and his parents. They waited for three hours, but Michael didn't return. The police were called. Neither the police nor the townies had seen or heard of a ragged boy with golden eyes and bleached hair. Mother and father asked about Tom. They grew silent when questioned, hastily changed the subject, organizing search parties, spending days and nights combing the beach and woods. It just goes to show how good people can be. Mother wept. All these neighbors we didn't even know we had. I've always looked down on the townies, but, but now... Don't worry, said father. We'll find him. He put an arm around mother and patted Katie's arm awkwardly. But Kate knew they would never find Michael. The night after he'd not come home, she raced down to the shore, searching for Tom. She did not find him. Instead, she saw a new mound. It looked like all the others, but slightly darker, slightly fresher, as if it had only now changed from sand to stone. Summer turns to fall when the sand becomes stone, and the ancient gods return, and childhood ends, and surely, thought Kate, there must be a single moment when that happens. <laughs>
she knew that Michael had joined the other children, the ghosts she had seen the first night, flickering in the light between day and dusk, shimmering in the place between shore and sea. Kate could imagine the scene. Why don't we bury each other? Me first, me first, cried Michael. He lay down on the damp line where the water met the land. No, said Tom. We must dig a hole first, otherwise your toes will show. Lie here. Throwing handfuls of wet sand back into the sea, the tide flattened them into the beach and swept them away, leaving no trace. He carefully scooped out a hole, just a little bit bigger than Michael's body. But Kate was wrong about two things, or perhaps she was both right and wrong, for she did see Michael one last time. It was not he who was buried under the mound by the sea, or at least not yet. It was five years after his disappearance. She'd been begging mother and father to return to the summer house. I want to go in memory of Michael, she cried. Tears flowed down her face like rivers to the sea. I want to return to the place of our last summer. Mother shook her head, returned to her room, and bolted the door. The latch clicked in the silence, as final as endings. I will take you, said father his voice flat and toneless as the tideless ocean. This trip was as different from the last one as the day from night, life from death, and joy from sorrow. There was no joking talk of ghosts or arrowheads. There was no talk at all. Kate had to wait till father was in the bedroom to race down to the beach. The sun was sinking into the ocean, a splinter of light lingering on the horizon, and was gone. Like a blood-splattered rag, a tattered cloud swayed over the spot of its going. Then dusk crept over the sky, darkness crept over the sea, and all was still as the last sunset at the end of eternity. She remembered watching the sun sink into the waves from this spot, hand in hand with Michael, not so long ago, but a lifetime away. And then, in front of the newest mound of sand, She saw two boys dashing madly through the surf, foam breaking against their legs as bubbly as laughter. Hey, Kate called. The boys froze. They turned toward her in the dying light. One was a stranger, but the other was Michael. Her Michael. She tried calling him, but the words stuck in her throat. For just a moment, his face was illuminated by the fading light and she saw his eyes, no longer the clear blue of a cloudless sky, but tawny, almost golden, flecked with tiny grains of darkness, like bugs in amber. He stared at her like a stranger, a townie, an adversary, then pulled the unknown boy off into the sea, the sand, and the night. I hope you enjoyed Gods of Summer, as written by E.E. King and voiced by Felipe Ojeda, Danielle Hewitt, Kyle Stroud, and Trevor Rines. E.E. King is an award-winning painter, performer, writer, and naturalist. She'll do anything that won't pay the bills, especially if it involves animals. Ray Bradbury called her stories marvelously inventive, wildly funny, and deeply thought-provoking. 
She's been published in over 100 magazines and anthologies, including Clark's World, Daily Science Fiction, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Short Edition, and Flame Tree. Our second tale of the evening comes to us from author Midnight Local and is performed by Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's newcomer, Ken Sampsil. In it, we'll meet someone who, when presented with an opportunity to travel and live in Japan to encourage their then interest in the country and culture, was more than enthusiastic to indulge in the offer. It changed them forever, and not for the reasons one may consider. They found something in Japan that affected them physically, mentally, and spiritually. Now, without further ado, I present to you, I've been seeing a girl with black hair in my dreams. Before we begin, let me say I don't expect you to believe everything. I just want you to listen to everything. Japan. The name conjures images of neon cities, busy streets, and anime for most people. But for me, when I hear the name, I am reminded of my insomniac nights, inner turmoil, and culture shock. It's easy to sit down with my now wife and reminisce about my awkwardness when I first met her and the times we went to karaoke and worked each other into a buzz. But on quiet days, when life feels different, we talk about my fear and the sleepless nights that plagued my everyday life. She apologizes for not being there for me whenever it's brought up, but I'm glad she wasn't. This intense burden was intimate with me. It's host. It might have broken her. I know it came close to breaking me. I spent three years in Kanagawa, a prefecture in southern Japan, studying business, but more importantly, as a translator for different groups around the globe. I tried to volunteer as a possible guide for Australian, American, British, and Canadian, any place that spoke English and needed an interpreter. However, my experience was raw, and I only got this position because of my uncle who ran a business inside the country. My performance was far behind everyone else's, and I knew that was starting to affect my popularity in the office. These three years were so full of experience that they may as well have been a century. I stayed in touch with my Japanese counterparts by drinking green tea and going to celebrations. I didn't have to learn how to smoke because that was already a poor habit of mine. My first ever acquaintance, Gaku, told me that the Japanese are the rulers of the liquid of life, green tea, and the slaves to the fumes of death cigarettes. Three months in, I started to develop stress that was caused by my poor performance. I wasn't at all prepared for this kind of work environment. Even though the younger generation of workers didn't seem to mind that I was often behind on our workload, I knew that the older veterans of the company were less than enthusiastic about me. Whenever I'd return to my apartment, I'd either sulk in the shower or lay in bed close to tears. The only thing that kept me grounded was the country's ever-present peace. It gave me the narrative that everything was going to work out somehow. Anyone who's ever been to Japan will tell you it's a calming country. You don't need to venture further than your front door to take a walk to find inner peace. I didn't often walk at night in New York, but I felt like I could do that here, which helped on nights when I couldn't shut my eyes. My parents are Christians, and growing up, I often prayed for answers to questions I didn't know how to voice. 
Japan isn't a Christian country by any means, but I often heard responses to my complaints. Although I never deemed myself a religious type, I usually prayed or cried out for guidance. One particularly bad night, I found myself internally begging for an answer on what I should do with myself. A small voice in my head told me to stay a little longer. It wasn't what I wanted to hear at the time, but I gambled and took the advice. I'm happy I did, despite the things I would have to suffer through in the next three years that I came face to face with. The morning after my walk with God, I met Kaila Suzuki. She was an Okinawan and is still the most beautiful girl I've ever laid my eyes on. When she came to the office, I made my usual approach when meeting a Japanese person. However, I was so caught up with her looks that I butchered my introduction, which made Kaida look at me with disgust. It was there when I learned that Okinawans were a much more blunt folk than their mainland counterparts with that I commuted. She called me a gaijin and pretended that I wasn't at the office for the rest of the day. But when I discovered she had a difficulty studying English, I knew I had to use this to my advantage. This unfortunately opened her up to the extent of my horrendous Japanese, so we traded slang and corrected each other's grammar. Kaida taught me about the customs, the ins and outs, the do's and don'ts, and the stuff I already knew, but I made her believe I didn't. Meanwhile, I hid my adoration for her and kept my staring to just a few seconds. Over time, she developed feelings for me and managed to do the same, admittedly with less effort. However, she was the first one to express herself. We were leaving the office one weekday and she stopped me on the way out. Kaida offered me a delicately wrapped present that I could have mistaken for a marriage proposal. I lost all my cool and almost opened it in front of her. Her eyes widened and she held her breath as she watched my inconsiderate actions unfold. I stopped myself though and gave her a deep bow, thanking her profusely for her gift. She nodded and bowed and then left. I took her gift to my dainty apartment and laid it on my coffee table, staring at it like a bomb. Just looking at it, I felt my cheeks get hot. I treated it like a living creature, and now that I was alone with it, what was I supposed to do with it? I felt so stupid, yet so flattered and wild. I opened it standing up, and under my small light hanging from the ceiling, I exclaimed at the box beneath the wrapping paper with the words Chamu on it. Under the electronic yellow light, I opened the box and found a thin baby blue cloth bag with a piece of paper inside. There were designs of white flowers littering the fabric. I could have cried and I might have. To this day, years later, I have never experienced that kind of bliss ever again. From that night forward, I can thank Kaida for everything I experienced overseas. The bad, the good, the confusion, the calmness, and the dread of returning back to the States. I wouldn't have stayed if it weren't for that charm. She'd never learned the effect that had on me until years after we married in southern Oklahoma. Not long after Kaida gave me that gift, I did everything to increase our relationship. I lost sleep and spent countless hours practicing my Japanese and work ethic to get paired with her. As a worker, my performance steadily increased. As a friend, my jokes always made her laugh. With her, I began to experience the more intense side of Japan that Western culture doesn't touch often. I think people will mention it in conversation, but when you travel there, it's somehow easy to miss. Kaida took me to the Tokyo Tower. If you've been to the Tokyo Tower, you're familiar with the Zojoji Temple. Seeing the place for the first time gave me whiplash. 
The modern neon giant of Tokyo could have been a million miles away when you stepped into the temple's courtyard. I'll look back on pictures and realize it's not how I remembered, but but I guess that's what makes remembering this day in particular seem like a fever dream. I remember looking at the presidential trees and suddenly getting goose flesh riding on my legs and arms. The gross sensation of being watched joined this. I turned to my side, suspecting Kaida, but I didn't see her or anyone else near me. Then somewhere in the courtyard, the harsh scent of burning incense came to invade my nostrils. Needless to say, I started to feel uneasy. I kept up with Kaida, but she didn't know me well enough to notice any of my signs of discomfort. Or maybe she did, but didn't know how to confront it. Eventually, she led me to the Jizo statues. These statues had pug-like face stones with squinted eyes and smiling lips, and there were hundreds of them. They looked innocent from a distance, but the closer we got to them, the more my skin crawled. As Kaida tried to tell me something about them, I stared down at one. I was distracted by how the statue looked back at me, and the decorations laid neatly around it. Red hoods, flowers, pinwheels, and enough facial features gave the impression that it had mischief on the mind. All the statues were handcrafted, so they all looked differentiated. I gave Kaida enough attention to hear that the flowers around them were offerings. The overcast made them vivid in color, but dark in pictures. As she spoke, I saw their pinwheels had different vibrating colors. Greens, blues, reds, and yellows. Strangely enough, I found that they all weren't still, and that the noise they cascaded while they spun made my head jog with bad memories. I thought that something so innocent shouldn't have sounded so menacing. I noticed then that almost none of the spinners were consistent with each other. Others spun wildly while others barely moved. The courtyard echoed with a chant, far from being uniform. Even though this aspect was queer to me, Kaida looked business as usual, if not slightly amused by my confusion. As we walked towards the tower, I felt their little stone eyes bury into my back, but honestly I preferred being watched rather than listening to those damn spinners twirl. Once we got into the Tokyo Tower, I can shake that uneasy feeling and enjoy my time with Kaida. We stayed up there for hours seeing the city and talking to each other. I wish I could say that was all that happened, but once we left, I again had an off-putting run-in with the statues. On the way back, it was too dark to see anything around the temple. Not that it mattered, though, because I could still hear the spinners twirl and vibrate just behind the sounds of the traffic and crowds. I could dial out the noise of modern civilization and listen to the slight crunch and hiss of the pinwheels. Along with that was the sense of being watched. This time it was stronger now that I was in the dark. That night, I lay awake in bed staring at the ceiling, listening to the world outside fall asleep, mocking me as I failed to do the same. The occasional flash of headlights stared me, and I flipped to my side, unable to unhear the spinners in my mind as they rattled my thoughts with vague pictures of their owners' faces. The cruel eyes, the naughty smiles, the unnatural look of the flowers. I only managed to gather a little more than four hours of sleep that night, but I still crawled into work so I could touch base with Kaida. To my surprise, despite my appearance being less than optimal, she informed me she wanted me to come with her to visit some clients intending to go to Yamanakako. This name to me was... irrelevant. But when I remembered this was near the Aokikahara Forest, I jumped at her offer. The train ride was quiet, and so was the drive. Kaida was like that in the morning, so since I was running on fumes, I felt no desire to strain my Japanese or to test her English. This made the morning as uneventful as our time with the clients, for the most part. 
The view of Mount Fuji was blocked for the entirety of our state since the overcast was so heavy. Still, aside from our clients being disappointed, I was happy and talked more and more to Kaida every time we were alone, especially on the Swan Lake boat ride. We made small talk as we fed the koi fish during lunch. We visited a collection of different places, exploring where we could, and then split off into small groups as we ventured with our clients for trinket shopping before we met again at the shore of the lake. We took a relatively short trip to the Aokigahara forest and visited some of the places there. I don't feel like it's necessary to explain the odd sensation that the forest has, especially with the overcast presented to us that day with the fog and the light rain. I bit my tongue and held my thoughts, telling myself it was just because of the night prior. My mental capacity was at its end, and my ability to focus on anything unrelated to Kaida was non-existent. Our clients thanked us for everything, and then I gave the regular spiel about contacting our company again if they needed assistance. After our goodbyes, Kaida offered to spend the weekend there. I had things to do at home, emails to reply to, and calls to make in the morning, all worthless compared to a weekend with Kaida. I agreed, and we went to a hotel to book our rooms. Once we've retired to our respective rooms, I got into the mindset of keeping to myself. I just dished out more money than I intended to for the week, and now I had to worry about not spending the rest of my splurge fund over the next two days. I sprawled out on my bed in my suit, watching something I didn't fully understand on the TV, repeating the words I heard and feeding the false narrative that I was being productive. I was dozing off to sleep when I was shaken awake by a pounding on my door. I winced and got up to see Kaida at the other end. She asked to come in and I obliged her request. Before I closed the door, she proudly announced that she had something for me. This is for you, Kaida said, outstretching her hands that had a small gift bag in them. When I took it, she watched me with an expression that told me she was pretty pleased with it. Open it. I opened the bag and carefully reached inside. I felt tissue paper and something pointed, not sharp, touched my fingers through the thin sheets of protection. When I unraveled everything, I saw the face of a clay demon mask. An oni mask. Gray skin, golden eyes, black horns, dark teeth, and some painted hair. It fit perfectly in my hand, and it felt fragile. My face must have made her think I didn't like it because she began apologizing for not buying a full-size mask. Anything that came from her, however, was perfect. I studied it, working a smile before I looked at her. I love it, I said. We stuck around longer, going over some mundane details about work, some plans for the weekend, and then how we would return home. When she left, I got ready for bed and had the worst nightmare of my life. Like many dreams, I didn't know when it started. When I became aware of my surroundings, I had already spent a fair amount of time in a maze made of concrete walls. I knew there was no roof above my head, but the cloudy sky almost matched the walls. I kept walking, sometimes finding dead ends in the directions I went. Whenever this happened, I retraced my steps. Every time I did, however, I'd notice that the walls changed when my back was to them, disorienting me further. The longer I wandered, the more the walls became corrupt. I found morbid paintings every couple of yards that grew more grotesque as they became more and more frequent. Sometimes I found blank canvases, but more often than not, I looked at images of skeletons, witches, cities burning, and piles of dead. There were trolls with war instruments dripping with flesh, blood, eyeballs, and other human remains. 
the art style was unmistakably Japanese. The deeper I got into the maze, the more twisted the pictures became. While I studied them, I noticed a recurring character in the corners. A woman with long black hair covering her face. The woman wore a solid white kimono over her body and stood in odd places, watching the torment and chaos with no emotion. Sometimes she'd be wearing a mask, staring at me through a painted gray veil with gross detail. As I regarded one picture in particular, I saw her blink. In my dream, I, I broke into a sprint, screaming for help. The walls hit a dynamic city. Traffic, loud chatter horns, and train bells. Yet no one was there to help me. The sounds of the city slowly deteriorated into one terrible sound of a koto being played. It was scratchy and intense. It was the only thing I could hear until I found a set of double doors to burst through. When I got to the other end, I was met with the same maze, but now in an eerie silence. I walked just a few feet before turning right, and at the end, I was met by a long corridor. I walked, feeling uneasy. Eventually, as I got further down, I saw a dangly-looking figure that stood crooked leg at the end. Even from the distance that we stared at each other, I could see the glow of their yellow eyes. So I did what I wouldn't do in real life and closed the distance, meeting them where they stood half erect. I stood on the platform to further explore the statue. When I got close enough to see more details, I realized it was a statue much taller than me and on a concrete platform. The stonework was cracked in several places, but only added to the inhuman features. I only stepped off the stand when I felt something tugging on me from behind. It was as though I had a leash around my waist that was being pulled on. I snapped my head around and saw a white string attached to my body. The string was thick enough for me to consider it a tail. It was connected to my body by the small of my back. I grabbed the tail and tugged slightly back against the tug that forced me off the statue. Confusion washed over and came to me, but it quickly gave way to fear as I heard something coming from within the maze. Deep scratches echoed and bounced from the hard walls, hurling themselves into my skull and giving me a headache. I covered my ears and grunted just as my ghostly white tail was tucked again. I tripped, nearly falling over. The noise was worse than the koto I heard in the last maze and paired it with the increasingly aggressive pulling, I felt a gush of dread go through me. I gripped the thing attached to me and retraced my steps all the way to where I came from, fearful of what was pulling at it. I heard faint animalistic growling on the other end as my tail shifted up and down. Beneath that was now metal pounding against rock, a constant hammering joined all the noise already attacking me. I brought my hand to my heart and breathed. I felt a slight pinch in my chest, a phantom pain that etched itself into my flesh and bones. I inched closer to the turn and peeked over. What I saw, I still can't comprehend. My eyes bore into a terrifying sight of a muscular creature with grey, almost black skin squatting down. It was an ogre-like demon with horns on its temples and tusks sticking out from its maw, covered loosely by a tattered loincloth. The terror I was looking at was one that I was acutely familiar with somehow. It was the model for the oni mask but scaled as a beast of nightmares. I noticed the stringy black hair and outrageous features, but the weapon in its hand added to my fear the most. It was a cannibal, with studs instead of spikes, and it was being used to smash my tail, feverishly trying to break or sever its connection to me. I gazed further down the corridor and discovered that the doors I dashed through earlier still pinched my tail, 
Has this thing always been attached to me? I watched in horror as the beast before me dropped the club and grabbed my tail with both hands, bringing it to its mouth to gnaw on. My gasp drew all its attention to me and I froze. In a blink of an eye, we were both staring at each other. Its pupils dilated when our eyes met. Then, it instantly stood up and grabbed its club while also reaching out to catch me. The embodiment of evil towered over me, nine feet tall and stronger than ten men. The demon's pupils were vertical as it wrapped its strangling fingers around my neck. I became frustratedly limp as I was lifted from the ground. My only option was to watch its gray face contort with horrifying detail as its gut-churning growl grew. It shook me out of my sleep. My body jolted upward. I swallowed my scream and started heaving. I was so sweaty that I thought I might have peed myself. I began to take deep breaths to control myself. I swung my legs off the bed and held my heart, my pounding heart as it battered against my sternum. I checked the clock and noticed it was only midnight. I was asleep for less than two hours. Some late night drivers passed by outside giving me the reassurance I wasn't alone in the world. I stood and went to the window, wondering if I'd go out to cool off and find my composure smoke to cloud my memory of that horrific dream. When I concluded that was the best thing to do, I turned and started for my jacket, but I saw something in the corner room beside the TV that froze me immediately. I squinted my eyes just to ensure I wasn't seeing something, but as soon as I did this, I could see the vague outline of a figure in the corner of my room much clearer. Steadily, my heart rate increased again. I knew I was unhinged from my nightmare, but I felt that this was different from your average trick-of-the-eye scenario. Nevertheless, I suspected it. I inched myself closer, careful not to make any instantaneous movements. I remained silent, and then leaned back. My eyes adjusted to the darkness, making me discover that the figure was darker than the shadows around it, which was off-putting. However, it added to my curiosity, so I shot a glance at my lamp. When I returned my gaze to it, I found a pair of two shiny white eyes looking at me. I wasn't aware I was sliding back until my ankles touched the wall behind me. I knew then that the lamp wasn't worth it, so I awkwardly reached for the curtains to begin pulling them. Even if it meant at this strange angle, I would flood this room with the streetlights outside. It took longer than I would like to admit, but every shed of light that came into that room caused the figure to melt into the wall. By the time I had pulled the curtain apart wholly, I was staring at a simple wall. Now dumbfounded, I went over and knelt where I saw it standing, trying to figure out what I could have seen. There were no pictures or pieces of furniture that could have replicated what I was looking at. I sat at the foot of my bed with my face covered. My head swam in a pool of fear caused by my nightmare and my standoff with my unwanted visitor. The room was cold and all the lights were on. When I came to my senses, I looked at my nightstand. Yet another peculiar find. Kaida's gift vanished from where I laid it. Finding her gift would clear my head of all the bullshit I just went through. I checked the drawers, my bags, the bathroom, and even the bed, all to no avail. My emotions hardened and I cursed myself. Humoring myself, I strolled over to the ghost corner and checked again. As usual, there was nothing. Nothing on the floor. But when I checked behind the TV, how'd you get back here? The pads of my fingers went numb when I plucked the mask off the entertainment center and lifted it up for viewing. Yellow eyes stared at me maliciously. The paint job around the eyes and lips had cracked slightly, so it looked more morbid than I remembered. 
I put it back down on my nightstand and fell into bed, watching Japanese television for the rest of the night. Once again, I only managed to squeeze in a few winks of rest before I pulled my bootstraps and got ready for the morning ahead. It was hard not to bring up the details of the last couple days to Kaida. I kept the subjects light and non-personal. I wasn't sure where Kaida leaned on the occult or any of her local legends. Demons, ghosts, angels, and spirits. I especially didn't want her to think I had an issue with her gift, so I kept everything to myself for months. During those months, I saved the mask in my collection of trinkets. I continued to have weird dreams at home, but they were never as graphic or honest as my night in Yamanakako. That said, I noticed there was a black-haired girl that kept reappearing in my dreams. I knew she was the girl from the painting somehow. We never spoke and she didn't do a lot at first, but she stuck out to me. Whenever I woke up, I'd think about her and feel unclean while doing so. This was a slow burn to a fire that would engulf everyday life. Eventually, as we entered July, I noticed that the few personal items I had at home started to move around, and some nights I would wake up and hear someone walking around in my room. Of course, I never saw anything in the physical world at first, but these discomforts became more and more frequent. Kaeda didn't know about this until it was late summer, so then, towards the end of July, I would finally break and spill about our stay in Yamanakako. I was reluctant for so long because I didn't want her to think I was weird. It's stupid, I know, but Kaeda was special. She was quite literally my everything at that point. We were in Tokyo. The heat was unbearable, so we found cover under a tree with some vending machine ice cream. Uh, where did you, where did you buy my mask? Kaeda eyed her ice cream and replied, Japan. She looked up and smiled, and I inquired for more details. Oh, it was in Yamanakako. I proceeded to tell her about my night in Yamanakako. Noticing I wasn't laughing as hard as she was, she went on to tell me that she had only found it by accident. She found a store that wasn't touristy or eye-catching. It sold a lot of different masks, but she said she was specifically interested in what she bought from me because it looked meaner than the others. The opposite of the charm that I protect with my life every day since getting it. Aside from looking different, it was also the only one that didn't have any taboo or unrighteous symbols. The craftsmanship was also prettier than the others, which painted some weird pictures in my head when I recalled what was back in my apartment. However, I kept my more recent issues outside the scope of what I was telling her. The Japanese will often close their eyes as they concentrate on what you say, and she was no different. When my story ended, she nodded and asked if I ate before going to bed. I said no. She asked if I was thinking about the legends of the Oni or any other ghost stories. I said no. She then commented that I don't sleep well in new places. I agree with this statement, but I asked what she thought about everything else. So it wasn't just a dream after all. Kaida told me she wanted me to focus on the dream, which we did for a couple of minutes. I exhaled and explained to her that I'd been saturated in Japanese culture for months. There was no reason for me to become fixated on the art, the myths, or anything else that revolved in their beliefs of the afterlife. My brain had material to work with and got more of the day of. Finally, she threw herself into thought and nodded. Just human things then, she chided me. I wasn't satisfied with her answer, but I took it anyways. 
We then focus on the thing I saw in my room. Night, she nodded. Night walking. Sleepwalking? I said. She shook her head. She said something I couldn't translate at the time and couldn't even translate it herself. Night wanderers came up a few times and I asked her what that was, but she eventually gave up. Ghost, then, she said with confidence. You saw a ghost. You day, I said to confirm. She seemed to take it as the correct answer, so I nodded. She smiled wider. A shy ghost visited you. They wanted to see an American. A shy ghost, I repeated in my head. I wasn't going to humor that thought. I know it followed me home and was slowly torturing me at night, growing braver by the day. I felt hate emitting from it. I, I felt it in its gaze, too. A shy ghost, I said to her. We continued to talk about my first night in Yamanakaku, but I wasn't making any progress on the subject, so I changed it. I didn't blame her for not knowing her country's foresight on ghosts or spirits because even the people I knew at home didn't. Even for myself, I simply knew about some of them because they popped into my studies. As I write this today, I still have the mask. It lies on my desk beside my journals. My story doesn't end here. Whatever I picked up in Yamanakaku or Japan as a whole, followed me back home, and it lasted for what seemed like a century. I hope you enjoyed I've Been Seeing a Girl with Black Hair in My Dreams, as written by Midnight Local and performed by Ken Sampsel. Ken Sampsel is an aspiring voice actor slash YouTuber from Okinawa, Japan. Being bilingual, he is always searching for the next voice acting opportunity, whether it be in English or Japanese. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs> Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. 
It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.